Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest, Aaron Pauly, is the vocalist and producer and mixer for Of Mice and Men. First of all, he's a great guest, just a super interesting guy, super engaging, and has a lot of great things to say for the producers out there. But also, I kind of think that he's the archetype for what future musicians will be, or at least what we can expect out of bands. In that, I think... In the next few years, if not already, every single band is going to have someone that is capable of recording. Now, how good they are, that's a different story. And I'm not saying that they're not going to need to go to outside mixers or producers or whatnot. But there will be more and more bands that can be a completely self-contained unit where whoever that person in the band is who's the producer actually gets really damn good. And this is one of those situations. And so I thought it would be interesting because it's not typically the perspective we have here on things. On uh, We don't typically get to hear from this side. Anyhow, enough of this. Let's get to the podcast. Here goes. All right, Aaron Pauly, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Very, very good. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Let's talk about your process for recording things that you're then going to record again. How do you make sure that when you're doing pre-pro that you don't basically blow your load on it before the album? For me specifically, I, I like to limit the amount of time I'll spend on something. I've learned that after I work on something for usually, for vocals, it's less time. If it's just something music or or recording related, for me, it's usually... Four or five hours after that point, if I don't take some sort of break, the work starts to be sort of reductive and I end up messing with things that I will end up listening back to tomorrow and hating. As far as overproducing in pre-production, I think for us, the main focus and for myself personally, the main focus is always just the song is the song in its most basic core components there. I think it's really easy also to get demoitis when you 
go into the studio and you start (laughs) yeah and you start realizing that you can't perfectly replicate some of the magic that you get from the demo and that's totally okay but i think as far as um not trying to make a finished product in the pre-production will keep you from trying to then use that as the comparison when you are making the finished product. So make a map, not the territory, basically. Yeah. It depends also on the way you're recording it. You know, like for for us, a lot of the pre-production elements that are more MIDI related that aren't necessarily drums, bass, guitars, vocals, a lot of that stuff is printed from our pre-production mm-hmm. or our demo sessions and then brought into whatever DAW or run through a console or something when we're actually making a record. If we're working in a studio, uh, these last couple of releases that of Mice and Men has done is, has been entirely in the box and entirely done ourselves. So yeah. the process of doing pre-production and post-production all ends up kind of blurring into one another. That's why I was curious, because I feel like it's easier to have a separation between pre-pro production and post-production when you do the pre-pro in one spot, the band spot, or your own homes, and send it around, and then you get together at another spot, which is the producer spot, maybe even go to a third spot for a mix or something. Oh, yeah. So it's just way easier to put things in their category, compartmentalize the work, but when you're doing it all basically in the same place, uh, I feel like it'll get blurred. And I'm sure, so just like you said with the some of the MIDI stuff, what is the point of redoing some of that stuff? Like if you, it's already awesome, it's already awesome, right? But there's always that question of like that vocal or something or that guitar that I really, really love. Do I love it because I have demo-itis or do I love it because it really actually is awesome and we should keep it, and it does matter that we can't recreate it. Yeah, you know, one of the funniest things I think that I can recall was when we were working on the album Defy with Howard Benson. We were thinking about a way that we were going to recreate a a loop, and the loop had a guitar in it that it was very sort of like a one take through like a pog making some sort of crazy noise. But we really, really liked it. And we thought like, how are we going to top this when we go to, you know, recreate it? And I remember Howard was just like, oh, just bounce it out. We're like, yeah, bounce it out from the demo. And he's like, yeah, that part, just like, just bounce the whole thing out. It's like, well, do you want it all separated? He's like, I was like, do you want to, do you want it in like a wave or an MP3? He's like, I don't care. MP3 is fine. It's like, okay, so a 320 kilobyte per second mp3 of this like loop part that we made is good enough to go on our album because it sounds good to our ears and because it's doing what it needs to do for the song and there's no need to overcomplicate it beyond that there is no like for principle's sake we need to redo it it's like no if you don't think you're going to top it then there kind of is no point and at the end of the day if you don't disclose to the audience that, oh yeah, this was in fact just an MP3 that we bounced out because we didn't recreate it in the the million dollar studio. They're none the wiser and it doesn't cheapen it, I don't think, you know. It doesn't matter. No. It's funny because I just talked to Howard Benson two weeks ago. Love Howard, great guy. He is one intense, intelligent character. Yeah, so haven't released his episode yet, but we talked about this actually. And uh, he said that his philosophy is doesn't fucking matter when it was created or who it was created by. If it's awesome, it's awesome. Just use it. You what's who cares? Like, seriously, who cares? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it. Um, maybe for us on like the creative side, 
There used to be like this weird stigma about like, oh, you're working in the box or you're doing things digitally. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, if I don't tell you, what do you think? And it's like, well, I, I, I can't tell. So what did you do? It's like, well, what does it matter then? Is it going to change how you feel about it? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And it's, it's, it's something I feel like that's unique to music that isn't necessarily the same with like fine art or with movies or like television or entertainment. There's nobody, nobody's ever like, you used what kind of camera instead of what? Like, I, maybe it's because I'm not in those circles, but I don't think it cheapens it at all to be able to produce something from home in the box. And now more than ever, technology's kind of caught up with, at least for me, with my ears, you know? There are, there are times where I'm listening to, I'll listen back to stems from the Defy sessions that we did with Howard Benson, and then I'm listening to vocals that I recorded with the Howard Benson plugin that he sent me, <laughs> and it's like, oh, cool. Like, as far as, like, what it needs to do to get the emotion across... Music is emotional communication, you know, like you're communicating. In order to get the idea across, is it relatively the same? And it's like, yeah, you know, it's like there's a reason why more people are making music with um, amp simulators and um, drum plugins with these amazing samples. And it's like, you know... I have uh, the Abbey Road control room that's tuned to these biodynamic headphones in a Waves plug-in. And it's like, yeah, it's not exactly the same thing, but like, as far as a creative tool that doesn't cost a lot of money and that you can run on a, you know, 2012 MacBook Pro, <laughs> you know, it's um, the, the creative possibilities are endless. And you can come out with a commercially viable product, you know. I think what does cheapen things is to try to recreate magic fall short and then go with the less magical option just because you think it's the way it's supposed to be done like it can't be that mp3 because there's some rule somewhere so you take the shittier option musically that's that's cheapening it i think yeah, well, because somebody on a blog said that there's like bits missing or something from it. Like, what are we going to do without the bits? <laughs> you know, the song will suck without the bits. Yeah, it's it's been truncated now. There's dithering on this. Like, what are we going to do? Yeah, it's just all the noise. <laughs> throw it all know. away. And the funny thing is, is, is people who enjoy music don't, at least for the most part, I think, they don't enjoy it for that. I don't know that most people listen to music, maybe people who listen to like jazz or classical to like sort of nerd out on that. But like, I, I don't think most people listen to music to be impressed, either impressed by what you're doing or by how you're doing it. You know, people listen to music because it makes them feel good. So now more than ever, people are making music entirely um, in laptops and things. I think that's a huge reason why electronic music and, and hip hop and pop music is as big as it is because you don't, you don't need all of those things to be able to make songs and to get feelings and thoughts and stuff out. So it's, it's super interesting to see how digital audio workstations and things like Zoom and Dropbox have really changed the way that we make records. I love it. Uh, I know that there's a, there's a contingent out there that really wishes that things would go back to the way they were, but we know how that works things never go back yeah. to the way they were. So whether we like it or not, this is how it is. And if anything, there's going to be more and more of this. This is the direction. It's like, you know, fighting this, moving towards people being able to do everything themselves and not relying on anything outsourced or just a few things. 
that's a, that is the future. That's where everything's going. And trying to resist that would be like resisting a tsunami on a surfboard. Like you cannot fight evolution. It's much like when the record industry tried to fight downloading that didn't work. You can't fight it. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, why would you want to fight against having an availability of a different set of more accessible tools? Like that's the only way I see it. I don't necessarily see it as like, oh, this is directly replacing this. It might, you know, it might be that because of the accessibility of, of digital plugins and modeling and DAWs and things like that, it might be that it logically ends up replacing a lot of studios and things. But I don't think you have to look at it that way because there are always going to be commercial recording studios. I firmly believe that. I think that it will become a more specified tool that you will need if you are trying to do something that requires it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a big waste of energy to be a uh, covered wagon maker screaming at the uh, at the Model T, you know what I mean, as it rolls down the street. If anything, figure out your niche market and market to that while you can. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of um, old man yells at cloud, you know, a little bit. Yeah, definitely. What, what I'm thinking is, what's it going to look like when the generation who grew up with home recording being normal are the 40-year-olds. Then are we going to have regular recording studios still? You know, like 20 years from now, that's maybe... It's hard to say. It's kind of like, you know... We have digital cameras now. I mean, I, I have one on my cell phone, you know, but yeah. there are still places where you can get film developed. Yeah. I don't know that that becomes the norm or that becomes the utility per se. You know what I mean? It, it's yep. sort of like it, the tool gets replaced by another one. You know, we used to like drill holes like by hand and then all of a sudden the power drill comes in and it's like, uh, there's still some projects where you might be working on something where you're not going to want a power drill for and you're going to want the manual drill. But ultimately, the power drill might end up replacing it. To me, it's just kind of interesting to follow because it's I, I can remember I started home recording about 2003, 2004. And it was kind of around the time that like Firewire started coming around and, and all of that. And it was super interesting how it went from a... Fostex MR8, the little like two channel red box recorder to all of a sudden having eight inputs and it's in my computer and like, whoa, I'm not like, I'm not like plugging in a task cam like via USB and bouncing out like stereo files into some DAW and like, and then you just watch how it exponentially snowballs into like everything to where now it's, it's, you can make songs completely in the box with logic, like Apple's just logic just with logic, with nothing else. You don't need literally anything else. It's got a billion samples, drum machines, synths, and it's pretty wild. It's a lot different than just the the tactile days. Why did you start recording back then? It was because we had gone to a local studio. Ah, uh, yes. And the guy had ripped us off, basically. He said, I'll charge you like 200 bucks to do your demo. And we're like, sick. And it ended up taking like four days because he ended up sending us home being like, no, work on this and come back. And then at the end of it, he's like, by the way, you owe me 800 more dollars. And we're like 15-year-old kids. So we're like, like, fuck this guy. I'm just going to like get software. Like, I'm going to figure out how to do this. To me, like... A lot of like what how I learned to record was almost working backwards. I would listen to a I would listen to a record, and I would like try and record like a shitty drum set with like three microphones or something, and think like okay, like how can I make this 
sound close to this. Like none of it was correct. You know, I listened back to some old demos and am horrified, but it is kind of funny how it's like, I can listen back to, to an old, like stereo bounce drum track that was just like Glenn Johns, like kick snare one overhead or something. And I can hear that I was trying to make the snare drum sound like the snare drum off like the first or second Circus Survive record. And I can hear that I EQ'd it to almost sound like it. And it's like, okay, and now you think from there, my brain went, okay, well, if I could take those three microphones and make them eight microphones, well, I could make the kick sound how I wanted and the snare sound how I wanted and then figure out how to make the overhead. So it's like a lot of it was I started with just two, like a four channel Mm -hmm. recorder. And then all of a sudden you get eight channels. You're like eight channels, like, like Prometheus getting fire. You're just like, I can do anything. (laughs) Based on what you just said. So you improved by making the most of what you had incrementally then, Mm. you know, so two channels, and then you have eight and then, you know, evolution happens and there's a few more tools, make the best of that, so on and so forth. But do you think that in some ways, despite all the advantages of how it is now, where you can have all of the options all of the time, do you think that that potentially will hold somebody's development back because they have too many options and it might hurt their focus a little bit? It might on the planning side. I feel like when you were working with a limited number of tracks, and even I can remember, I think my first edition of Cubase that I got with a, a Personas interface, I think it maxed out at like 24 channels or something like that. Like I think when you're working with a limited medium, it teaches you planning. You know, it teaches you. Mm-hmm production planning like okay the first thing i'm going to want to do is i want to bounce down the bat you know when you're working on a fast xmr8 you're recording two channels at a time and then you got to bounce them <laughs> to either five or six or seven or eight and then you can record two more and you can bounce those and you know you can just keep like track stacking i think if for me personally i value that i learned it that way i don't think it's maybe necessary nowadays because it would almost be I feel like you would be teaching yourself something that you might not have to use in the future because now everything is, is, um, you know, instead of track stacking now, you're, you're creating like summing stacks in folders and things like that. Like you're, you're organizing your project within your project. At least I do. I like to organize things in folders so that ultimately I'm working with like three or four bus faders for everything. And it's like, oh, I can mute everything I want or nothing I want, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's actually a really interesting question. I do think though that there is something to be said about learning audio recording on a four track that can just make you appreciate what eight tracks can do. I think that just as a discipline, limiting your options is a really good thing. And I can tell you that we've had quite a few mixers on Nail the Mix who have deleted most of their plugins and have only kept, you know, a very select number. And that's not to say they don't ever experiment with new ones. Mm-hmm. They do try new ones, but they'll routinely call the herd basically. So they don't get wrapped up in bullshit basically and distract themselves. Like they don't need eight plugins that do the exact same thing. Potential to waste some time right there. Now, two different types of EQ that do two completely different things, fine. But I do know quite a few people who routinely go through basically their tool set and get rid of the stuff that's extraneous. And I think that that is a really, really wise move. 
That's cool. I think that's something I'm going to do. It, it's funny. I, I, I was on a, I was on a tear where for about six months, I got myself like a, a, a universal audio, uh, Apollo duo twin. And I was just buying plugins and I maybe, I maybe spent like eight or 900 bucks on plugins, all stuff that I really like and use. And then I got to a point where it was like, I would try trials out and stuff. And it's like, oh, well, I kind of like what I bought. And then I realized it's like, you don't really need to buy anymore if you like what this does for a snare drum or you like what this does for a vocal. Like it, It's really, really easy also to confuse yourself, I feel like. You could be flipping between which sounds better, A and B, and they sound basically exactly the same. I mean, you could look at it on like a spectrograph maybe and argue that they're different. But for all intents and purposes, they're exactly the same. And you're just like, well, which one's better? Because it's it's got to be the best one in it. And it's like, man, you can waste so much time doing that. And not and not just time, but it's like... Brain ram. You can you can lose that creative spark easily. Like it's it's you're you're kind of playing with really soft clay. And if you start kind of mashing it around, like you got to be sort of gentle with your songs and your production. At least I feel that way because I, I I will tend to sometimes just get in there and just start manhandling something I've made and just like throwing EQs and compressors and doing this. And I'll listen to it like a few days later and be like, what was I on? Because this is not good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That rabbit hole sucks. It, it's so interesting how the universal story that people tell when it comes to doing that is that going back to the original is like the move 99% of the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. If, if anything, hyper meddling with your project will just give you a, a, a confidence boost with your original when you go back to it. Well, there's it's something sort of to like, be said for it's that. Sort of like, it's sort of like breaking yourself all the way down to the point where you're like, I don't even think I know how to mix. It's just a sham. Like I've just got lucky from here till now. And then you go back and you're like, Oh, actually it was pretty good. Like, you got to tear yourself all the way down sometimes to go back to the original and just, you know, not entirely hate it. But that's that's the creative process. I think that means that you care. If you care enough to say, well, I'm going to, you know, it, to me, it's sort of like if you're building a house and you're like, should I use these nails or should I use these nails? It's like, well, they're all going to be sheetrocked eventually and people aren't going to be talking about what nails you used. And you can waste a ton of time picking the best nails, but it's like, I don't you're know. using nails. like. I don't have I don't have tons of energy for things like that. I'm a pretty low energy guy. <laughs> so so what are your priorities uh I guess energy expenditure wise when you're creating a record that because having the responsibility of both being the artist and the producer that's that's a lot. So how do you how do you make sure you're not burning out and how do you make sure that the communication stays good between everybody and how do you make sure that uh, you're focusing on the right stuff? Because you know, like when you're when you're the artist, it's very easy to get hyper focused on that stuff. Oh yeah, I won't even say with full confidence that I do that all the time. I definitely get <laughs> I definitely get stuck in those in those conundrums between like as a producer, this is what I think, and then as a songwriter, this is what I think. What's really weird is sometimes those are different. And I'm the same person and I don't know how to like <laughs> pick, 
you know, I have, I have my bandmates who are incredible musicians who I just trust. I have a small handful of, of friends and family that I will send ideas off to, to get like honest feedback. Like, Hey, does this, does this sound bad? <laughs> there's, you know, there's been a, there's, there's times where it's like, you know, I I've done a mix and I'm like, I think this is cool. And I'll send it out and somebody be like, Hey, the symbols are kind of bugging me. And it's because to their ear, to their headphones, their symbols, you know, the symbols are bugging them. And it's like, Oh, interesting. And maybe that's kind of more on the myopic like mixing side. I think on the production side, it's I think it's all about the the spark. And and the spark happens when at least for me personally, when two people are doing two different things or two instruments are doing two different things or it's two tracks, but where two ideas coalesce and the sum of those two ideas is just greater than both of them put together. And you just get that little bit of like, whoa, mm-hmm. kind of like if one guitar player is jamming on a riff and the other one does some sort of lead over it. And it just it, it just does something to you where you go, whoa, and you become excited about it. And you're like, I, whatever that is, whatever that just did to my to my ears, like or to my brain or to my soul, wherever you think music speaks to, I want more of that. And so that sort of becomes the whole MO of just like, I spend a lot of time, I wouldn't even say a lot of time, I spend very little time messing with the way that things sound as much as I try and mess with like what is being emphasized more. Like the way I look at mixing, it's not like, oh, I need to make the drums sound good and then I need to make the guitars sound good and then I need to make the bass and vocals sound good. Then it's all got to sound good together. Like for me, mixing is more about like, I have the control of like emphasizing what the listener is going to hear. And that could be a snare drum here, or that could be a vocal line. That's maybe only two or three words that I'm going to bump and move to the left ear. Like you're more so like messing with emphasis. You're messing with like what people are going to pick up on, on a conscious and subconscious level. And so for me, it's just all about like, when I listen to it, does it communicate to me what I think I want it to communicate to the fans? Do the drums hit me the way I want. And a lot of it is, is a lot of it probably is reductive to like my own personal tastes. I listen to a lot of music in the, in these like Sony headphones that I have these like Sony Bluetooth headphones. And I like mixing in them, even though they're probably not the best and people might get mad at me for it, but it's, I love listening to music on them. And so listening to my music on them, it's, you know, I've never, I've never really thought about mixing like well, you know what it should, what music should sound like on them. Yeah, and 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 to me, it's it's never felt like I'm sure some mixers. It feels like you know they're making a sculpture and they're starting with the clay and doing that. For me, it almost feels like I'm starting with a shape that already kind of looks like something, and I'm just going to very gently try and make it look like that. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of what I do is just taking the tracks that my guitar players send me, the DIs, and then finding a guitar tone that is similar to what they would play live. And then to me, once it's like, okay, that's cool, I won't spend hours tweaking it. Because if I do, it's not going to improve like the overall final product. Just trust your taste. Yeah, and just kind of just go from there. Because I think... At least for me personally, if I don't, if I spend too much time in the in the, the little myopic bits and pieces, like I don't ever get to that point where I feel like I'm emphasizing certain audio elements for the for the listener to hear. I'm not emphasizing things in the song anymore. I'm emphasizing things in the audio. And I don't want to be mixing audio. I want to be mixing a song, which is kind of like a really weird way of looking at it, I guess, because it is just 
It is just mixing audio. Yeah, but you're not listening to random audio. You're listening to a song. So I feel like one of the biggest problems that student mixers have is that they forget that they're mixing a song and are only thinking about audio. So it makes perfect sense to me to hear you say that. I do think that actually how the music hits is something that too many uh, aspiring mixers don't think about. Um, And uh, I feel like great mixers, really good mixers, they will tend to all agree on that, actually, no matter how technical they are. It doesn't matter how advanced they are, how unbelievably great they are, or how expert they are. You know, like, I know some dudes with encyclopedic brains that know every single little detail about every single little thing you could ever imagine about recording, but they're still just mixing songs. Yeah. It was David Bendith that really instilled that in me. We made uh, we made two records with David, two records and an EP, and watching him mix was like watching somebody sit down at a piano. He's He's mixing on a giant SSL, and he's moving things rhythmically, and he's moving things to the song, and there's certain lines or certain harmonies where... When this harmony, if you bump this harmony up, all of a sudden that lyric sticks in your head four or five seconds longer than it would if you didn't. And there's and and I never thought about things that way. But, you know, watching him mix real time, it would be like watching somebody performing. And he would he, you know, he would do it, you know, sometimes eight bars at a time, 16 bars, 32 bars at a time. But like it was very much a performance. And it was all about emphasizing parts of the song. At that point, it was nothing about the way that the vocal sounds. It was nothing about, oh, is the, you know, is, is there enough like 10K on it? Or is it, 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 at that point, it was literally like, what do I want your brain to latch onto? And I'm going to make that slightly louder, <laughs> you know? And that's such an interesting way of looking at it because you can really sort of shape the way that somebody interprets a song. You, you basically, you're changing the track of the roller coaster that they're going on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to jump on something that you said earlier, that people are kind of going with your taste, right? Like you're you're going by what you think sounds good. You listen to a bunch of music in those headphones. You're going for what you feel should be emphasized. Well, I mean, isn't that really what anybody hires a mixer or producer for at the end of the day. I mean, it's not because of their technical expertise. It's because of their taste. Yeah. I think for most people it is that way. I think maybe if you're younger and starting out with, there is the idea of like, would I rather be in the giant, like who's going to know more, the guy with the giant studio or the guy in his living room? (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like, well, I don't know. I was definitely at a, I can remember being like a young kid and thinking that, 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 oh, well, there's, and granted it was 10 years ago and there was really no way that home recording sounded as good. It's, yeah, it is super interesting. It's, it's more interesting now that somebody would have that opinion or feeling because home recordings can just sound so good. <laughs> they can, because, because honestly, what people are using at home is what people are using in, major production facilities now, you know, one thing that was really interesting to me was when, when Howard made his vocal plugin, he sent it to me and he's like, Hey, I want you to try this out. 
And I was like, this rules. And not only does this rule, but I've, I've worked with Howard and I recorded vocals with him and it sounded like Howard's vocal chain. And he goes, yeah, now I don't got to set all that shit up anymore. It's like, <laughs> cool. Like he uses that in his studio, which is why he would design something like that because it's, it. Yeah. That's not just marketing. Lot, no, it's a whole, it's a whole lot less steps. And I think it's, that to me, like it's an obvious, you know, it's an obvious business move or whatever, but it's, it's almost kind of altruistic in a way because there are people like me that used to just troll home recording forums trying to figure out how anybody could make a snare drum sound like the Paramore snare drum or, you know, or how Howard could make, you know, the first My Chem record sound that way or any of the records that Howard's done. It's almost altruistic in a way to be able to like share that. Like here's here's my vocal chain and it's just in a box and you could just use it on your laptop. It's like that's pretty cool. Like and granted not everybody, you know, can take a Swiss army knife and carve something insane out of it. There's the tool. Yeah, but it's way easier to carve something with a Swiss army knife than not having one. Well, I think what's great about it, and I know some people disagree, but what's great about technology where it's at, plugins where they're at, Stuff like URM and Nail the Mix, I think it's that collectively all this makes the process of getting something to sound good, at least good. Maybe sounding fucking amazing is still, you know, still like a feat of magic, but getting things sounding pretty good is available to most people who want to put in some effort, whereas before it was practically impossible. So theoretically, it should allow them to focus on the creative aspects more. Yeah. And, and there's, and there's something about like with nail the mix, having, having a, a piece of work, you know, a song that, you know, and having the tracks being given the tools and given the, maybe not necessarily instruction of like, Oh, do it exactly this way. It's, it's, this is how I do it because this is how I hear it. And you can either like totally reject it or you can learn something. But at the end of the day, like it's all just about like, spreading knowledge it's just about like what can you pick up like what's what's a, a technique like for me um for me one specifically was um watching uh nolly get good doing a, a a live mix of one of their of one of their songs that was a good one he talked about using distortion on the snare drum instead of like clipping or instead of anything that you would typically use to sort of round off a snare drum and still make it impactful and he he was just in it was in some video and he pulls up a a stock logic plugin just a distortion plugin and it's like oh you can use distortion and what happens is then in the context of the mix when you throw your master bus on and you have um, you know, your master bus level compression, all of a sudden your drums come to life and that snare drum sounds like a cannon. And it's like, oh, I never thought of putting a distortion on a snare drum. And now I do it all the time because I like the way that it sounds. And it's like, I don't know that that's technically right, but I also don't think that it technically matters because what you're making is not going to be it, it, it's only deconstructed to the level that you allow it to be deconstructed. If we would have just made these records and then never talked about how we did it, there would be no way of deconstructing it. You know what I mean? Well, that's why I think that these ideas of what's technically right and wrong, I think a lot of them come from a different era. They're less from nowadays and they're more remnants of the forum days. And in the forum days, you know, we haven't started nail the mix yet. Like, there was very, very little information about how to do this. So people who were not on the session were speculating about 
how this shit was made and coming up with whatever the hell they were coming up with. And, you know, maybe on the Sneep forum, he would pop in and give some like cryptic advice about, you know, I like to tune the, the bass uh, down a few cents, throw some distortion on it. You're good. Oh, yeah. You, you know, shit like that. It's like, cool. Nice to know that you put, nice to know, okay, so tuning the bass and uh, putting distortion on it, you do that, but like, that's that's it. That's the info you've got. And then on top of that, there's a bunch of people who weren't on the session throwing in a bunch of ideas of what they think is right and wrong, whereas uh, what actually happened on the session is anybody's guess. So I think nowadays that people are seeing that there's a million ways to do it and doesn't really matter as long as the end result is awesome. There's less of those audio myths floating around, or it's more in like super beginner level, I think, but there's less of it than there was a few years ago. And I really do think that like, like that MP3 example you brought up at the beginning, that reminds me of stuff from the old days, just these weird rules on forums. I remember being on those forums, and and it's funny, too, because long before I ever worked with David Bendeth, I remember he used to be in the Gear Sluts forum, like, kind of frequently talking, like, somebody would chime in, like, oh, I bet bet he did this and did this, and he'd be like, nope, it's this, and it's like, oh, and I remember remember talking to him about that, and he's just like, yeah, you know, a lot of it is, it wouldn't matter what you could tell people, because it's like, certain things like a, a a bass tone or or a snare or something it has a lot to do with the fact that there's a gigantic ssl board that when you turn the high end all the way up it does something completely different on the hardware than it does if you do that in the plugin you know just 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 the way that certain circuitry would interact with one another or you know i don't know i think ultimately though you end up arguing and you have three or four different methods from three or four different people that said, hey, I think this is what they did. And to your ears, they sound pretty much the same. So pick one and run with it. <laughs> like, and just Cool, you could do that to make the snare like that. Cool, is that what he did? It doesn't really matter. Maybe. It sounds right. But I think that's also a, I don't know. I think you, you almost have to be recording and producing in, in almost like a utilitarian fashion to get that mindset anyway, to say like, well, whatever gets me the result, I'm fine with, because I don't care if it's technically, I don't care if it's technically the right thing, or if it's like, I don't care if I'm using this compressor wrong. It's to me, it sounds good. It's getting the result that I want moving on. I think that one of the plugins that's used the most on Nail the Mix is CLA effects or CLA vocals. And without fail, every time someone pulls it up, like they apologize or they're like, it's kind of embarrassing. Like, like, because there's this stigma about that plugin that like it's cheating or something. And I think that that's also from the forum days, but is using a lighter cheating instead of rubbing two sticks together. I mean, you could argue that. Yeah. That's what I think these people would argue, but yeah. So man, the people use that plugin like crazy. Cause it's awesome. It's funny. It's one of those things where for some reason people have it in their head that it's just not technically right, but they use it anyways because it's technically awesome. I don't know. Did Jimi Hendrix play the guitar technically right? Is that why we remember Jimmy? I don't think so. I don't know. It's because he was awesome. It's because what he made connected with you. It resonated with you. I think... There's a lot of hubbub about all of the technical side. It's fun to nerd out about. What's not fun is to argue about it because it's kind of, if the end result is that you want fire because you want heat, then 
don't argue with me about how I'm getting to the fire. You know what I mean? Like, but I, I remember seeing a lot of that. And a lot of it was pointless too, because like you said, nobody really had the facts to argue. It was just like, well, I think this. Well, I think this. And I remember I remember buying like my first set of like studio monitors. They're like, and I still have them there on my desk. I don't really ever use them that much. They're, they're just like M Audio BX5As. And I remember being stoked on them and I plugged them in and I was listening to music. I was like, these are awesome. And then I go on forums where somebody's like, those are dog shit. You should have <laughs> bought these that are yep. <laughs> $600 a piece. Like you're not, you're not, what are you doing? And it's like, it's very strange. I remember that with the event monitors I bought at the beginning. I was so stoked. And then I saw the trash talking and I was like, what did I do with my life? Where's this all going? Yeah. And then in reality, you could still just enjoy what you got. They can still be useful whether or not it's like, I don't know. To me, to me, if the whole point is getting to the grocery store and back, arguing whether or not you're taking a Lamborghini or a Honda is kind of pointless. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Well, th another thing that I think causes problems is... Uh, Speaking of technical bullshit is, uh, you know, when people will start talking about things that you can't hear, right? So they'll be arguing back and forth about something like summing or about different converters. Well, yeah, I sure that stuff makes a little bit of a difference for sure. Everything makes a little bit of a difference. But when you have people at like Andy Wallace's level or Colin Richardson's level or, you know, master's going for that final half a percent because they are that good that they're competing like Olympic athletes, that stuff does start to matter. And when they start saying that they notice a difference, the difference that they notice is something that only people at that level are going to notice. Other people are not going to notice and it doesn't even matter. And I think that when, when the uninitiated read about that stuff, they start to think that it, matters a lot more than it actually does because they're reading something without hearing a difference. They're just taking in this information and saying, okay, I need to get summing. I need to get a summing mixer because that's what real mixers do. Like I am nothing without a summing mixer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really dumb. It is. And it's, it's super, it's super self-limiting. If you are your gear, well, then you are your gear and then people with better gear should make all the best mixes. And that's how we rank everything now is who's got the best room. And the great mixers and producers that I've been blessed to work with all have one thing in common. And it's when I ask them about the technical side of that, they're just like, uh, that's not like that's not what excites them about any of it. It's just like, oh, well, this is kind of what we're doing. Oh, well, how did you like get that? I don't know. I just I like the way it sounds. It's like it, nothing ever had to be more complicated than that. Then it was good for the song. It was good for the part. You know, I do think, you know, it's it's not I'm not saying, oh, well, just just make whatever you want and it's going to be great. Like you can definitely make technical mistakes that are wrong on your records. Oh, you yeah. Have, yeah, of course. You can have phase problems. You can have symbols that, you know, one of the things I had to go back through one of my mixes recently was I just kept having symbols that just kept ringing at all these very specific high, you know, like post 9K frequencies. And I was having to go through with like waves q10 and just like whoop, like just find yep. <laughs> the little ring and just whoop, and drag it down and 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 i was just and it's it's little things like that and it, you know what's funny is they make a plugin for that i know that they make a plugin for that that it will literally listen to your symbols and i can't remember what it's called but it will, 
Yeah, 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 Soothe. They make a plugin for that, so you don't have to go in and Q10 all the little... And and it's and it's so funny because it's 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 things that was bothering me that I was going back and making revisions and sending them to my bandmates and they're like I can't tell <laughs> I don't I can't tell the difference it's like okay well don't worry about it then but I you know I think that again a a producer's job is I, I, I guess it's separate a lot of times now producers are mixers and and even mastering yeah lines are very blurred yeah, now. lines are very blurred I think yeah. that for for us for me doing kind of the the production and mixing side it's always more about the song you know i can always hear david every time i get stuck doing something like tweaking something really stupid and spending too much time i can hear david bendit's voice in the background going yeah that'll sell a few more records <laughs> because it's and he's right at the end of the day it's like that's not really going to matter and i think it's it's fun to sort of talk about the specifics of of how we do things or how different producers do things. But at the end of the day, it's all about the songs because fans, for the most part, outside of rock music, they don't really talk about recordings that much. I don't remember the last time I heard people debating a pop record. Fans, I mean, like just general music consumers. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more question though about heavier music is do you think that a majority of the fans are music creators which makes it different than say pop i would say maybe a majority of the communicative fans it's a good way to put it yeah if i think about like if i close my eyes and think about playing in a mice and men show at like a festival in the midwest or something like i don't 
think that most of the people in that crowd are people that go home and then make music. But I think about the people who would want to engage online or who would want to be more connected to that side of how it's made. I think ultimately, though, that bridge is first started, you know, the first plank in that bridge is the emotional connection to the song or to the music or to the artist. I think it's only kind of when you get more into the educational side that you start sort of peering into the production side of things without necessarily being inspired by the art. You know what I mean? Like it's, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of people that get into home recording, they do so because they really fall in love with music. And then there's, there's this like inquisitive part of our brains as human beings that are like, oh, I wonder how they do that. And you can Google it and you realize, oh, it's computer programs. It's, it's computer programs you can buy for a couple hundred bucks. And then it's like, oh, like maybe I could do that. And I think that's, you know, maybe some of the bitterness too in thinking about it now with people from the previous generation that had to learn recording from being an intern at a studio under some hard ass who's like <laughs> screaming at them while they're trying to cut tape and tape it together and not ruin this guy's session. You know, like maybe there is some like of that there of like, well, you just didn't get your, you know, you don't, you don't learn everything when you're not in the fire like that. But like sometimes it doesn't. I, if, if history's taught us anything is that it technology moves us away from laborsome tasks and makes them easier, but I don't think it cheapens the final product at all. That's just my personal opinion. I completely agree with you. I think that the people who had to spit shine toilets and get abused by tyrannical producers, which is how things have been or yeah. were for a long time. Yeah. Definitely, they paid their dues, several lifetimes worth of dues. And so it's got to be a slap in the face that some kid can learn all this shit in their bedroom and just fuck around with it and get better and then get signed and uh, have the stuff they made in their bedroom come out. And yeah. There you go. They they skipped that entire process. That's just the same way that I think that there I know some band guys who have a lot of bitterness towards artists who got big on like YouTube first and then you know so they got big on YouTube then they started touring and they skipped the van phase which you know good for them but like uh but I know a lot of artists that look at that and are like well they're not real musicians or they're not true artists they didn't uh they weren't a local band to you but everybody else that enjoys it they are yeah exactly but i think it's a sim it's a similar thing cuz uh yeah they didn't they weren't a local band for 5 years they didn't go in the van for 10 more years after that before getting to a bus they just put shit on youtube and then 3 years later got in a bus and uh, you know it's i know it pisses some people off sure and I mean, and there's an argument to be said, you know, if, if you are, we call it's funny. Cause there's actually, I think a term for that. It's just, it's born in a bus. <laughs> if you're fortunate enough in your musical career to be born in a bus. There are certainly things that you won't learn on the road, but hopefully yeah, of you course. won't have to, you know, you won't have to learn how to live off a $5 a day per diem, you know, hopefully you're getting more and you can eat like, I don't know. And I think that there is, yeah, there's definitely some of that. There's, I know for a fact that somebody's watching this whose job was to label the patch bays and take all the cables out. 
I don't even deal with patch bays. I drop plugins. There's no patch bay anymore. It's just there. Like it's just, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's a beautiful thing too. And so I get it. I totally get it. But I think in terms, if, if anything, I would hope that people could turn that bitterness into excitement about the fact that you don't have to relabel a patch bay. You don't have to like do any of that. You can, and it's great. And it's all tools there for your disposal. But like, as far as having an idea in your head or in your heart, getting that out, writing something and creating that and getting that to people, it's like, Our first EP of this trilogy of EPs that we're releasing, I mixed and mastered it on my 2012 MacBook Pro. (laughs) Like, it's It's so so ancient, and it's slow, and it's like, I I have to be very careful about how many plugins I use. I have to be careful about how much latency I allow myself, because it's just, it's not a modern, it's not a modern machine by any stretch of the the imagination. But... The first single that we put out from that was number one at Octane for like months. And we would laugh about it because it's just like, isn't this funny? Like we made the song on Zoom. We broadcast our Zoom, uh, our Zoom session to Twitch. We recorded all these tracks that had so much latency because as he's, as he's trying to track, it's coming in and recording like 120 milliseconds late. So it's like, okay, we're going to have to grab that and move that back so it's like with the drums. And just grab it, move it. Cool. Sounds good. You can spend three hours fighting with latency. It sounds good while you're tracking it. Drag it and move it. And it's like that ragtag process of sending things in Dropbox and DIs and, you know, the drums are um, the drums are uh, are Steven Slate drums that Tino actually recorded on a V kit and sent me MIDI for. So it's him playing it. And it's like, oh, cool. Like, this is the future, and it sounds good. And then we set up the way that it sounds, and then once the once it sounds good, then you can worry about if all of the elements of the song are there and work out how you want that to impact people. But but nowadays you're not really you're not spending so much time fighting the sound because, like you said, there are out of the box plugins like CLA. You just boom, sounds good. Now I don't have to spend an hour messing with the sound, and I can spend an hour thinking of the part. So just out of curiosity, why are you on a 2012 MacBook Pro? So I'm not anymore. I'm now, I, I, I upgraded after that. I upgraded after that EP. Okay. I was just curious because... Uh... It was the tools that I had. I just dropped a brand new SSD in it. It's got like two gigs of RAM. <laughs> and it, <laughs> it functioned. It was it was kind of a function over form type thing. I now have the new um, M1 Mac Mini, which it has its own set of like weird sort of like graphical interface things because it's using its own M1 processor instead of like... Oh, that's the big problem with it. I have one of those too. Instead of something that's Intel based. So it's... I haven't found any plugins that don't work audio wise. What I have found is that some plugins graphic, like the GUI doesn't show up. So I'll open up a plugin and I'm like, oh, I can hear it, but it's just a black box. A lot of that's been patched. So I don't have any plugins now that don't work. Yeah. And this machine is psychotic because I can't bog it down. I can have all the tracks I want open, flip through Chrome tabs, just have every, and it's, and it's funny because I appreciate this so much more having made the record on the MacBook because it's like, oh, I accidentally, I accidentally hit freeze on the bass tracks. So I'm going to need to take a 15 minute walk while this freezes because I can't stop it from going through the process. It's just it's going to take 15 <laughs> minutes to freeze the track and then I can keep working like it, it. If anything, it's just it puts into perspective like where technology is at now. And I hadn't upgraded in the last 
10 years because I hadn't really found a reason to, because as long as it was working, it was working. Once we got to the point where I'm in the 40-ish tracks range, you know, for the Timeless EP, I, I hit up a uh, management and I was like, hey, I'm I'm probably going to put like a new computer on this because I, I can keep working, but like it's... I'm fighting the tech now. I, like the tech is what's slowing me down, not the ideas. And now it's just like modern computer. It's it's as fast as you need it to be. I can't imagine any reason why I would need this thing to be faster, but it's really freeing. It's also it's a ton, so you can definitely confuse yourself. Let's talk a little bit about making the most of a computer that's struggling because um that's a, a lot of listeners actually oh, yeah. um have that issue. I know I know they'll open up Nail the mix sessions. This is how I know. And there will be like 140 tracks and their computer just isn't down. <laughs> Not DTF, basically. Um, can't handle it. I mean, I know how I would go about it. And I know the stuff that we say is like submixes, freeze plugins. But how did you handle it? And this is fun because this is kind of a fun creative exercise. I would do a lot of like final decision making on the spot about the way that certain instruments would sound. Like with regards to like amp plugins or uh, drum plugins, it was, okay, I like that bass tone. And this is like, this isn't even something like that I would recommend for somebody who's working on something that's like a commercial product. But for the sake of like at home, it's a good exercise. I would find the guitar tone from the plugin I like. I, I like using STL tones, um, guitars. I think they just sound fantastic. They're very raw and analog. So it's definitely not just slap it on and turn it on. Like you, it's definitely like working with a real amp. You got to take some, some of the stuff out, you know, but once I find something I like, I'm like, cool, print it. Because I know if I give myself the option of returning to that guitar plugin and just moving the microphone on the fake cab, I'll do that. But if I don't have that option anymore, I won't think twice about whether or not the guitar sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. So I limit the amount of stuff that I can tweak. And then from there, you realize like, oh, like you really don't. If, if your source material is well recorded, you don't need to hyper tweak with everything. In fact, there's some stuff where it's like, I'll, I'll get like a sample that one of the guys has made or something like, oh, here, put this sort of behind, like, you know, like a, a programming part or something. And it's like, I won't even necessarily like put any plugins on it because it sounds good. I'll put it up to volume and it's like nothing in me says I need to mess with this in order for it to be good. Some things can just sit. But it's it's for me, it's always a useful exercise to try and limit the amount of tweakability I give myself. And there's a lot to be said for committing. So this is actually one of the things that the analog guys hate about the digital guys is uh, they say that in the analog days, you had to make decisions. Mm -hmm. You didn't have the option. And so you got better because you were constantly having to make final decisions. But this is where they're wrong. Most of the best digital guys I know have that same ethos. One of the first to do it completely, you know, in the box, Joey Sturgis, that is like one of the most used techniques in his style was to get things sounding final, freeze them, the end, move on. So that by the time it's time to mix, it already is pretty much mixed. It sounds the way it's supposed to sound, but there's so many people I know who operate that way because if you don't have some form of that going on, you're going to get analysis paralysis just because of the amount of options you've got. And you can you can lose the song in the audio. Yes. 
it seems like such a strange concept. If a song is made up of multi-track audio, how can you lose the song in the audio? I fully believe you can do that. I believe you can mix a song to death. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I believe that, like, conversely, you can have a kind of shitty song with a super great mix, and it's also kind of like, okay. (laughs) You know, there's kind of that fine line of if you give yourself... If you give yourself too many colors in your color palette and somebody says, okay, paint a birdhouse, like here's a birdhouse. I want you to paint this for me. And you have like 200 colors. You're going to get really confused, like trying to pick, is this the right yellow? Is this the right red? And it's like, there is a time and a place for those, but I sort of like picking those colors out beforehand and then saying, okay, I'm going to give myself these five colors to paint this birdhouse with. And then you can worry about where you place them. And that to me is more of the creativity of like, where are you going to place that tweakability or those decision making like and it doesn't have to be in all of your guitar di's or your bass di or changing the way your snare drum sounds a million times because i do that too and it's the first one i pick is always my favorite (laughs) i always think i can beat it and then i'm always like damn i'm stupid like when you make decisions what happens is you don't get better at using your tools you get better at refining your decision making which is far more important which is infinitely more important Yeah, it's what actually matters. The ability to do that is what allows a great mixer to be able to work at a huge studio or laptop and headphones on a tour bus. Oh, yeah. Doesn't even even matter. That's with stock plugins or with the coolest plugins. Doesn't matter. Like, I know that, I forget what band it was, but I know that there's some record that Will Putney did. He did it at night while he was producing some other band in Australia and all he had was headphones and a laptop. The record charted, I mean, I forget what it was, but sounds amazing, Yeah, of course. But if you know how to make decisions, you can do what you do anywhere with anything. Yeah, and I, and I think with, with any limited set of tools, I think, and I can't remember who told me this, the most important thing that anybody who wants to be a music producer or mixer or engineer can do is to just listen to a ton of music and just learn how to like critically listen to things. Like learn how, like close your eyes and think like, how are things panned right now? Close your eyes and think if you can hear compression or if you can hear certain effects. Is the reverb, does it sound like more of a plate or more of a hall? The snare reverb, oh, I can hear it's gated. You can kind of like sort of critically learn how to listen to music and then producing your own almost becomes like, instead of just producing your own, you're almost kind of reproducing the things that you like in other records. Like a lot of what I do in the Mice records is I'm I'm reproducing to my ear, things that I like about our past records, things that I like about other records. And it's more just trying to match things that I've heard that I know that I like. And that becomes more, I think, about, like you said, about like refining decision-making skills rather than the tools that you're using or, or whether or not you can tweak tracks to sound like that. Understanding that like I like drums that are punchy. I like, I like, I like really compressed stuff. I know some people are like compression. (laughs) You shouldn't hear it. It's like, well, sometimes I like the way I hear it. Sometimes I like the way that it seems to suck everything out when the kick and snare happens. It feels like you're getting punched. Like everything's sort of time and place. Like we've been saying, you can get lost in the technicality of it, of like, well, you're not supposed to do that. But it's like, I don't know if, if history's taught me anything, it's like, especially in music, the people that do things out of the box, like you, like your, your Jimi Hendrix is, or when Zeppelin was like, Hey, what if we did it in stereo? Like what? <laughs> Everything used to be, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's instances where you can break the mold and it's like, then that becomes the norm. 
I don't see it going back. I don't see all of a sudden it being SSLs and tube gear everywhere. I think technology is kind of here to stay. I completely agree with you. Okay, so when you hear something that you want to recreate, what's the process behind that? Like, are you actually trying to recreate it or is it more just like a idea in your head of like some inspiration and then you kind of you kind of know what you're going for and then you just go for it or are you listening to it and referencing Sometimes it's kind of both. If we're working on a song and to me, I'm like, oh, this song has kind of like a Gojira vibe to it, you know? I'll go back and I'll listen to Gojira records, you know, like the Infant Sauvage like that Josh Wilbur did. And I'll go back and I'll listen to it and it's like, okay, knowing what I know kind of about EQ, compression, like knowing the tools, what am I hearing and how do things relate to one another? For me, it's not necessarily like about, oh, I'm gonna, I want to recreate something that feels like this record, so I'm going to try and match all these tones. For me, it's not so much about that as like, how does the bass relate to the kick drum? And how does the bass relate to the kick drum and the snare? How do the guitars relate to the cymbals? Where are the cymbals? Are, do the cymbals sound like they're close mic'd and panned? Or do they sound like they're kind of far room mics and, and some production they don't have super wide cymbals because they prefer wide guitars and cymbals are kind of brought in. Like for me, it's sort of trying to critically listen to how things relate to one another and then sort of try and build my own project like from there. I think when I try and tone match and do things like that, it always ends up a mess. <laughs> like I always end up with something where it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, this sounds like this to my ear. And then I put it in context of the rest of everything I'm doing because it's not a Gojira song on a Gojira album in a Gojira mix. And you're like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't really work out. But if you can kind of sort of train yourself to critically listen to things like panning, listening to things like, you know, does does the mix sound like it has a lot of mid-range in the drums? Does it sound like they're more scooped in the drums? Um, does the kick drum, does it sound like the clicky snap of the kick? Does that sound like it's something that's coming in 3, 4K? Or does it sound like it's coming in 1 or 2K? You know, sometimes you have like a more mid-rangey sort of kick drum. But just sort of learning how different pieces correspond and interact with each other when you're listening to the whole. And, 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 and I should specify, like when I mix, I, I top-down mix. So I already have, you know, a, my master bus is already kind of set up with... Uh, bus compression, and then I have um, a multiband compressor and limiter as like faux mastering while I'm listening to my mix. Like, okay, if I was to mm -hmm. if I was to listen to this with multiband compression and limiting, does it still sort of translate the same way? So I think doing it the top down approach and then trying to think of how things relate to one another more so than what is this tone and what is that tone and what is this tone because it's. The, what you're listening to when you're listening to a recording is you're not listening to drum tone and guitar tone and bass tone. You're listening to all of those tones and how they interact with one another through multiband compression, multiband limiting and, and mastering and things like that. So you're never really like, you're never just listening to the bass or just listening to the drums. You're listening to everything. The top-down approach, I don't know why it's controversial. I don't think it should be. I, I think that nobody should care how somebody does things. But I know so many great, mixers who have decided to do it that way. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Why would you mix a certain way if it's all going to change later? Yeah. So it makes sense to kind of put it in its context from the get-go. Yeah. Like I know that everything that I work on, if I'm going to master it, I know at some point it's going to go through multi-band compression. The actual bounce is because it's just 
it's going to have to, and then it's going to go through some sort of multi-band limiting. Those are just things that I know are going to happen. So whether or not I wait till the end to see if they totally destroy what I what I worked on or not, <laughs> you know, to me, it, it's sort of, it's it's the laziness in me. I just, I don't like working super hard at something that I can slap on there for reference and at any point go, boop, boop, and all of a sudden it boosts it to commercial volume and it's got that sort of, you know, multi-band compression pump or whatever that thing does. <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, I, to me, there's really no point in arguing it anyway, because if somebody, could, if somebody could come up with the exact same thing, not top down, then cool. Like it's all going to end cares? up, it's all going to end up a digital master, which is zeros and ones. And if you, if your zeros and ones are pretty close to my zeros and ones, it's going to sound pretty much the same. So like, I don't know. It, Who cares? Yeah. And 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 it, like I said, if you don't divulge how you do any of this, if Billie Eilish didn't come out and say, I recorded this in my bedroom, nobody would have assumed that. They would have assumed it was like no. at the best studios, God knows where, on some island somewhere maybe. You can only really argue about as much as you let into the, the production side of it, which it's, I don't know. It's all fun. It's all fun. Somebody could say like, they hate my mixes and hate the way I do things. And that won't offend me because it's like, you know, I enjoy it. And to my ears, it's, it's what I like. So, so just out of curiosity, after working with people like Howard Benson and David Bendeth, how did you get the band to trust you? And was it scary for you to like have to follow those guys? I used to do like production work. I did a lot of like our pre-production mixing and stuff like that. I actually mixed our live album live at Brixton. That was like the first thing I got to do audio side, like actual commercial for our band. I mean, it, man, it honestly came down to, I think my bandmates having a lot of trust in me and they're also just not being a lot of options. There was, they're just the, the, the studio that we had been doing uh, our recordings at hybrid studios in orange County. Um, it, it went up for sale, like towards the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if it's even still open, it was kind of it was kind of utilitarian in a way of like and it was always under the premise of we're going to self-produce and self-track this and I'm going to mix it. And if it sucks, then somebody else is going to mix it. <laughs> and and I'm totally okay with that because like for me, it's I learn something new every time I open up my DAW still. Like there is there's no amount of me sitting down, like I don't ever sit down to mix being like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I, I know the way that some of these tools work and I discover new things and I learn new things every session and I probably forget some things every session. And it's sort of an evolving craft that way, you know? Technology changes, the interface changes. It's it's not Firewire anymore, it's Thunderbolt. But I think the actual reason why anybody sits down at their home to say, I want to try and make a recording, it's because of things that go way beyond just creating something that's commercially viable. You know, my love of home recording started way before even really like being in a touring band. I was producing local bands before I was in a touring band because it was just something I enjoyed doing. And I think 
I was probably a pest to all those producers that we worked with because I always wanted to be in the room and I always wanted to kind of ask questions and see like, oh, well, what is this? How do you do this? Like <laughs> there was never a time where any producer we'd ever worked with was like, no. You know, if I would ask Howard Benson about like how he's doing this or if I was asking David about like his drum sounds or like they were more than willing to talk about it and they were happy that somebody cared about just the the ins and outs of things because for them it's they they're doing it to their ear you know they're doing it because you know i make these decisions on the snare drum because it sounds good to my ear and it's like oh that's really interesting and that was what they would all say every single one of them would do different things and then would tell me well because to my ear this sounds the best and then that that's sort of i think what kind of imparted on me a little bit there's definite science you should learn and I think that there's definite technique you should learn, like with, uh, with regard to like live miking and making sure you're not recording things out of phase. And there's definitely things like that, but a lot of it was like, trust your ears, learn to listen critically, and then let your ears be your most valuable tool, you know? Well, first of all, I agree with that idea. But the only problem with that idea is that people at the beginning, can't trust their ears because they don't know what they're listening to. Oh, for sure. So it becomes really hard when you say, when when they ask, how do you do something? And people like, use your ears. It's like, well, that person's ears suck. Oh, yeah. I, w I would never respond with use your ears as the, as the answer to what should you do or what are you doing, but more of the like, why did you do this instead of that? And it's because to my ears, this is what sounded good. Well, at the end of the day, though, use your ears is the actual answer to just about every one of these questions. Well, there's two answers. It depends and use your ears. It's hard to help people get better by saying it depends or use your ears. Yeah. But no, but but that is it. Like at the end of the day, kind of back to the reason that a producer gets hired is their taste. It's those decisions like between A or B, well, they go with what sounds better to their ears. Those decisions are why you work with somebody. It's their taste, their inclinations. Yeah, and I think that's why things like Nail the Mix is so hugely valuable because it gives the opportunity for people to see the way that somebody who is creating something does it. And there's things to be learned. You, you learn like techniques and then you also learn like the MO, like the why, like, why, why would you do this instead of doing this? And, and the answer is like, well, because to my ears doing it this way sounds better. I never really thought about it that way, but I, I do think that there is something to be said. And I've said it every time. Like I'm, I'm anything I do as a mixer or producer or engineer or any of that is because I'm a product of working with the people that I've worked with. Yes. It's asking questions and if there's anything I could tell anybody watching this who hasn't been in the room with people like that and who would want to, I mean, they will all say the same thing in that it's not the technical side of things beyond, you know, making sure you're not out of phase and, and you know, just, just the standard, like, you know, recording 101. Like, the shit you should know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beyond that, though, there's not, nobody has any sort of, like, massive rule book of, like, oh, it's got to be done this way. I've seen things, dude, they're like, I mean, people were recording kick drums with speakers that were wired. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> that, that was not in anybody's booklet of like, oh, this is the technically right way of doing something, but it makes a cool ass kick drum sound, you know, like the original sub kicks or whatever using the, uh, was it like NS10 cones and shit? Yep. And now you can't even find those anymore. And it's like, how many of them got turned into fucking kick drum <laughs> mics? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's hilarious. What's funny is that sometimes this is very few, but it always sticks out. Sometimes we'll get some complaints because some people will think that we're holding out on them, like the mixer is holding out, hoarding some information, like there's this extra thing that they were hoping to get. But the thing is that what you really learn after being around enough great producers and mixers is that they're all kind of doing, I mean, you know, there's different methods, but they're all the same techniques pretty much, like same tools, same techniques, different uses, but, you know, kind of like if you go to an Italian restaurant, there's going to be pasta, and the pasta is going to be probably made from a few different types of ingredients, like a few different options, but pretty much the same thing. It is what it is. And there's no great magic to it besides whatever's in somebody's brain. Uh, and that's the part that you can't teach somebody how to hear things the way you hear them. No. And you can't teach somebody how to have your instincts. Besides that, though, once you kind of understand the technical side of it to some degree, uh, there isn't, there really isn't much more to it, I think. Yeah. There's like no Wizard of Oz or... No. And I would say probably the only thing that producers would be holding out on are pieces of archaic gear from the 70s that only they have, and it's like 20 grand for this rack that, that does this special kind of delay. But if I didn't have this rack and I was working at this studio, I would just use this plug-in, and it just set it to this, and it sounds kind of like it. And it's like it's, some people have their sauce. Like, like everyone's got their own recipe of their sauce. Yeah, sure. The sauce is good because whoever's making it has a good tongue and has a good palate for making the sauce. The sauce isn't good because of the ingredients. It's because whoever is making it has the taste to make it well and is hopefully, I don't know, doing so. Maybe that's not a good analogy. I don't no, I think that's a great analogy, actually. I think that's the right analogy. Yeah. Could you imagine what like somebody like Freddie Mercury and Queen would do with a, like a MacBook and Logic? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Hard to imagine. These tools are giving so many creative people the ability to be creative without having to be technical. And I think there's so much more value in that than whatever pearl clutching there is to be done with the analog way of doing things. I think that there's something to be said about the fact that creativity is so much more viable and accessible now. It's not, oh, you don't have to like go to a commercial facility to get this really good melody you have out. You can get it out and then you can build off of it and then you can release it as Billie Eilish and get a, tons of Grammys. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. That to me is cool. That doesn't cheapen recording to me. That makes it better. Like that makes it, it's more accessible. It's like, did humans gatekeep language the same way? Like all these people learning how to read. <laughs> it's like, no, it's a good thing. I don't know. But that's just the way I look at it. Maybe it's because it's also not necessarily my industry. You know, I'm not necessarily in the covered wagon business. Maybe it's not for me to comment on, but I don't know. I agree with your perspective, though. I think about all the good that it brings to kids that would otherwise get ripped off by the local, you know, the local 80s hair metal guy that records bands now. Like, I think about the fact that you don't have to go to that guy and record your stuff all analog. That's such a great thing. It's such a great thing. It's, it's you know, it's, and nothing against any of that, but it's. There's, there's definitely two ways of looking at it, and one is just pessimistic, and you're not going to fight it. Like, it's not going away. Like you said, it's it's you're never going to put Pro Tools back in the box. 
no, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think that it's a wonderful thing that you don't have to go to that neighborhood studio anymore. It's great. I remember that shit, man. That's actually why I started recording in the first place was I got sick of going to that place. And that's why a lot of people I've talked to started recording. Yeah. Like pretty much most of the metal dudes I know who started recording between like 98 and like 2004 or something had a bad experience with a local studio and were like, fuck this. I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. Oh, and back then it was like, okay, go to college, get like a two years associates, create a business plan, get like a $20,000 loan. You can get like all the gear and like a few months on this like practice space. And dude, there were so many recording studios that like popped up in like massive like recording places. Like uh, we used to have a spot in Sacramento where they did the, uh, they did that first Dance Gavin Dance EP. It was called Death Bot. And it was literally, it was just like two practice spaces like rehearsal spaces in like a giant lockout and it's like oh wow this is like cool and that was so different from my experience at the first place i went to where the first place i went to we were recording to tape i know 15 year old kids recording to tape yeah cool it, it <laughs> sounds bad like it doesn't doesn't sound good like not i'm not saying tape doesn't sound good i'm saying our recordings did not sound yeah. good they cost us like 1200 dollars, and they did not sound good and then going to Deathbot, where this dude had just like got two rooms at this lockout ran a snake through the wall and was like there wasn't even a window it was like here's a little cam like here's a little webcam yeah. and here's this tiny little like crt monitor and you'll be in there and i'll be in here and that was home recording, but at a lockout. And that and that spot was cool. I loved going to that spot. And to think like, okay, I asked him, I was like, how much do you th figure you've paid for all your gear? And he's like, mm, in total, between the computer, the Pro Tools rig, the monitors, the microphones, maybe like five grand or something. It's like, holy shit, I wow. thought studios Amazing. were like millions of dollars. And it's like, no. And the stuff that came out of it was good. But it was good, I think, because... The, the the engineer there at the time, Phil, he was like a music fan and he liked listening to music and he recorded a lot of the local bands. And so what ended up happening was he ends up getting clientele because the way he mixed things became synonymous with like the local scene in the area. You're like, oh, I want my record to kind of sound like their record and their record and their record. Well, the same guy did all of them. And it's not even necessarily that what he was doing was the right thing, but it's like, I mean, you do enough of it, it becomes the right thing. So I wonder... Well, I was doing the thing that people like. So I wonder how much of modern recording is that. Like, think thinking about, like, the way that the Beatles made albums and to now, it's like, so much has changed that to argue about the technicality side of anything seems kind of moot. Because I don't know anybody that's like, we need to go back to mono. All these people recording in stereo are ruining music. Like nobody's <laughs> saying that, you know what I mean? But it's like, how far back does it go? Maybe to maybe like towards the internet digital age. Like, yeah, probably like you said, like nineties, early two thousands. That's like where the line is because people who learned how to yeah, record much. before that were scrubbing toilets, getting screamed at. There was kind of no middle ground, not to mention there was no like full sale Academy. I think back in for like people in the eighties. It was like, no, you interned for a hard ass. And in turn, that guy taught you everything he knew about music for better or for worse. A hundred percent. And I think it's, there's, there's value in all of it. I wouldn't try to devalue something just because it brings more accessibility to people. That seems kind of, a, um, I don't know. It seems kind of gatekeepy to me. Gatekeepy and regressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I think this is a good place to end. The I think episode. we've yelled at people wanna... enough. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Just good. It was a good yell, though. I would say to anybody who absolutely does things their way, that is principled in the old methods, like, more power to you. I have great respect for people that do things that way. Likewise. And that is why, to me, it's, it's, it's when it kind of comes the other way, I'm just kind of like, eh. I don't know anybody that's working on tape anymore. Even the old, even the old school dudes, every SSL board that I have ever seen is hooked up to a computer. Yeah. At the end of the day, man, if that's what, if working like that is what works for them, fucking cool. Yeah. And if, and if you're listening to this at home and you are passionate about recording, like do it and put out an album on a MacBook 2012 pro, you know what I mean? Like, like don't feel like you don't have all the tools because it, the tools are very, very accessible. And there are the, the, the biggest tool and the, 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 the place I feel like people can invest their most time and get the biggest pay out from is just investing in critical listening. Yeah, actually learning how to do it and your tastes. Whatever headphones you prefer, whatever monitors you prefer, just listen to tons of music and, and listen to the relationship between things like the guitars. You know, learn learn to, to listen to where things are panned. Learn to sort of deconstruct things in your mind and almost sort of... You know, you can work backwards that way a lot of times. Like, like if you get really good at critical listening, you can almost close your eyes and work backwards from what you're hearing in totality down to things like, oh, that snare drum has a ring at 350 that I would just love to notch out. The top dogs, like like the David Bendis and Howard Bensons, they're so scarily good at things like that. Like one of the one of the coolest things that David Bendith ever showed me was that he, you know, most human beings can't really differentiate anything less than like 20, 25 milliseconds. He was telling me things that were out five or 10. He would have me drag, like he would have me take a, like a snare drum and drag it one way or another. And he would, he would be able to guess within like Two or three milliseconds, how far I dragged it, whether it was late or early. Amazing. Yeah, just something stupid like that. And what was funny was he told me, he goes, you know, things like that, like being able to hear that a snare is 20 milliseconds behind or ahead, that's more valuable than plugins or volumes or anything like that is learning when things hit your ear. Because you can have a snare drum that's hitting it the exact same time a kick is and you're not going to hear it. But you nudge that snare drum out 20 milliseconds out behind the kick and you hear both. Because in mixing, you're not just managing the levels of things, but you're actually managing when things hit your ear. So I learned all about like taking vocals. He's like, if you ever, and this is actually something you can try at home for anybody who does home recorded vocals, record yourself singing and, and record a track that you feel like is good, that you feel like your timing and your pitch is good. If you listen to it back and you feel like it's a little out of tune, Take that vocal and drag it back 15, 20 milliseconds so it's behind the beat. And 99% of the time, it will sound perfectly in time and in tune. He said, because when people are singing, you're singing on the beat and too many things are happening at once. And I was like, I never even thought of things like that. Interesting. And Interesting. you listen to any modern pop record, put on any, put on any Drake song. Drake, his vocal is like 50 milliseconds behind the beat. It is delayed. It is back there it is just sitting way back in the pocket and you hear it crystal clear and it's just the most bizarre thing but like even little things like that like learn learn to hear how long delays last or how long reverbs last and you don't need to know that oh well that lasted one second but you can sort of create these benchmarks in your mind of like 
I don't know. And maybe that's just the way I, I process things. But, you know, I like to sort of listen to things and then try and recreate them with my tools and not recreate them in the sense of like recreate them perfectly, but recreate the relational balance between everything. Cause you can get a very similar mix with very different tones. If that makes sense. Absolutely. That's a great thing to put out there. I haven't heard about that fixing the tuning. I want to hear it now. <laughs> it's psychotic. There are times where I will do a vocal take and I will know I sang it in pitch and I'm like crushed it. And I listen to it back and I'm like, damn it. And then I zoom in and it's like, ah, oh, I rushed it. And it's, it's usually 15 to 20 milliseconds. You can, you can try doing things like dragging guitar leads. Anything you want to sort of stick out, try dragging it back a little bit. You know, anytime, anytime there's ever a, uh, anytime there's ever a drum part that, that goes like four on the floor, boo, gah, boo, gah, where the kick and snare are hitting, every time I will drag that snare so it's not perfectly aligned with the kick. And the snare will always come afterwards because otherwise you won't hear it. And that was something David taught me was, was timing is just as important as volume. It's a great, great lesson. And you can train yourself without knowing exact, you know, you don't have to sit there with a stopwatch and train yourself to know milliseconds, but like you can eventually train yourself to hear if something's coming early or something's coming late. You can feel that. You can learn to spot it for sure. It's interesting. And it's all, it's all just like, the, those are all just little keys that unlock doors where you can go through and be like, oh, I can drag this guitar lead back. And all of a sudden it feels so much more open and almost like it's, because the other thing too that you don't realize is when you move timings on things, you're also changing the way that your bus compressors and everything operate because audio is actually happening at different times. It's not trying to grab everything all at once. One thing that I started doing, we did this like on my band's last record, was I wanted things behind the beat and so just took the kick because it wasn't a natural kick and moved it forward by like 10 milliseconds, which, you know, then makes everything else 10 milliseconds behind. And suddenly everything just felt so much better. Oh yeah, all your low end opens up because your kick drum isn't squashing your bass because even even fractions, like even milliseconds, like that changes the way that gear operates on, you know? If you're talking about like compressors operate on like millisecond thresholds, you know? So moving things milliseconds will absolutely change the way that your whole mix is perceived and whatnot. And that's actually a lot of thing I think that that the and it's a shame that it's coming up now so late in, in our chat, but like that's a thing the greats are really good with is timing. Is is knowing like, oh well this is the reason why this doesn't sound good is because these things are kind of squashed on top of one another and this is happening a little late. So you fix the timing and all of a sudden you can hear everything because not everything's happening all at once. But without making it seem totally unnatural. Man, well I think that how some how music feels in time is in some ways arguably more important than the pitches. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. One hundred percent. You can have something that's perfectly pitched, but it's, it's on top of like, if I come out with a really long held out sustained note and I hit that note at the same time that a guitar hits a note and the bass hits a note, it's like all of that just is a cacophony of frequency and you can end up I don't know, you just end up losing some of it because ultimately it is going to go through a multi-band compressor where if you have four or five instruments that are all like really smacking 500, it's like it's going to bring all that down, you know, so. Absolutely. Well, Aaron, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on. Really good to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. And keep that fire, man, you know, like just. Don't stop. 
That's, that's what it's literally all about. It's just that the passion of like, I don't know. I think home recording, it's the shit. It's just, it's amazing. And I love that it's like, it's more accessible now than ever. So me too. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.